What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Spending some time reconnecting with nature this summer? Here's a camping hack from L.L. Bean to make your next trip the best yet. Tired of your tentmate's flashlights shining in your eyes in camp? Bring an empty half-gallon milk jug or clear water bottle. Simply strap a headlamp around it, and it becomes a soft white lantern for everyone to see the light. For more camping hacks, visit youtube.com slash L.L. Bean. L.L. Bean. Be an outsider. Write that, write that down for me, Slater. Write that down for me, Slater. All right. Welcome back. Hi, everyone. Hello from Burbank, California. Thank you for joining us. Another episode of Write That Down. This week is upon us via Fight Game Media Network. My name is Justin Nipper. I edit for FightGameMedia.com, StaffWriterWrestlingObserver.com. I also work for Pro Wrestling Noah and CyberFight. And I'm back once again this week. With Japan's leading pro wrestling author, writer, historian, sociologist, broadcast journalist, Mr. Fumi Saito. This week, we are finally focusing on the father of Japanese pro wrestling himself, Riki Dozan. This episode, this week, we are covering up until about 1958 in his life and his career. We will pick up next week from this point from around 1958 onwards to talk about the latter part of his career and his overall impact and influence on Japanese pro wrestling and post-war society in Japan in general if you have not already please subscribe to the Fight Game Media Network podcast feed on Spotify Apple, wherever you are listening to your podcasts, if you're listening to this and you're not subscribed, hit subscribe. It helps us out very much. Let's jump right in. Breaking those on. Part one. Yeah, that's right. We're, we're, we're stepping right in because we've got a big, uh, big story to tackle today. We're going to tell the life story of Ricky Dozan, who officially passed away on December 15th. What year was that? 1963. 1963. So 59 years ago. And today is Ricky Dozen's 60th anniversary uh, memorial. It's a Buddhist thing that uh, exactly 59 years ago today. But it's the 60th memorial in Japan. It's, um, it's a Buddhist thing that you count the day he passed mm-hmm. as one. Mm-hmm. So it's it's been exactly 59 years, uh, 59 years ago today, December 15th. But in in the Buddhist you know way of counting it, you count the day he passed as one, then you start counting. So it's today is 60th year memorial in mm-hmm. Japan. 
And the people gathering at his his uh, his memorial park at the gravesite today. That's in uh, Nishinipuri, I think. Uh, in Ikigami. It's kind yeah, of Ikigami. a quiet area. I, I know that. I've never been, but I've always wanted to stop by. All right, next time you're in Japan, let's go there. There's the statue. There's a statue there, yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. And you can visit all year long. But today is the day, yeah. 59 years ago, uh, Rick Dozen passed. And, and his, uh, well, the book's been written, books and books and books been written, and movies and movies and movies been made. That's right. And uh, You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I remember and, seeing the, the uh, years ago when, when Netflix was still, uh, it was still on the come up. That was yeah. where I first saw the Ricky Dozan movie from like 2004, 2005. Okay. Uh, the one you years watched was from the Korean. Korea, South, South yes. Korea, yeah. Actually, the movies and movies been made in Japan, in Japanese. And there's the, 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 we haven't seen it, but the, the movies and movies been made in North Korea. Okay. But the, we, know, we know so little about the country. And South Korea, the one you've watched is a Korean interpretation of Ricky Dozen's life and time. Hmm. Yeah. Featuring a and lot of uh, wrestlers uh, from that time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It was interesting, like Keiji Muto playing uh, Harold Sakata and. Uh, Akiyama um, was in it. Akiyama was in it, and Hashimoto was in it. Masakatsu Funaki played um, Masahiko Kimura. Mm. In, in it, like the part. Sharp Brothers, you mentioned uh, Bart Gunn. Uh, Bart Gunn, Bart Gunn, and yeah, yeah, they were there in there. It was interesting, you know, because mm. they actually used you know real wrestlers for that part, mm. and filmed in Japan and filmed in Korea, and it was very interesting that the, this role guy he really put on twenty pounds to play Ricky Dozen. Mm. Yeah, it was an interesting movie. Uh, Ricky Dozen in Korean, Yokto san. Yeah. But even Different still, movie. it doesn't it doesn't tell you the the full detailed story of of. But it's life. so mysterious. Yeah, we're going. Yeah, this podcast. Yeah, write that down, right? Mm. And uh, we are always always try to get to the bottom of it a little bit. Mm, sure. <laughs> and uh, but about about but the, about life and the time of Ricky Dozen. Still, some of these elements are very, very mysterious, and I don't think we can cover everything about Ricky Dozen in two episodes of our podcast. You know, in our part, in two hours, three hours, you know, probably. But we, I don't think we can do everything. But as much as we know, and as much as that, how we look at it today, and the historical facts, as much as you know, dates and. In places and what he has done, it's well documented, and the circumstance of his death that uh, it's been reported so wrongly in, in the English-speaking world. That we'll cover that, and uh, yeah, we'll start. Where do we start? You know, it's, it's, a lot of things are still mysterious, and uh, it's not about not just about wrestling. Um, it's like he was a product of the wartime. Very much so, and I think if we had to start somewhere, I guess we have to start in a For different Japan. History. Yeah, and I, I think he's uh, one of the main pro wrestlers that's so not not just from Japan, but all over, from all over the world. That's so tied to the history of what was happening at the time, and oh, definitely a product of the time. Yeah, and the the, the Japan world. that he, I, I guess, lived in, or I guess. I, 
would you even call it Japan today? I don't know, but it was a different. Yeah, yeah during the war, the pre-war and during the wartime and uh, the post-war. Yes. The rebuilding Japan period. I mean, he lived it. And he was epitome of like a Japan becoming independent again. Yeah. Hmm. So and it, the beginning, beginning of the television. Beginning, beginning of, of television, wrestling. but um, beginning of wrestling. Yeah. I think one of the the key factors into really understanding Nikki Dozan is understanding his heritage or his uh, his upbringing. And yeah, yeah, because people say he's from North Korea, but actually. He was from yeah the the northern part of the Korean Peninsula, and back in 1920s, the the entire Korean Peninsula there was no country such country as North Korea or South Korea like today, the entire Korean Peninsula was Japanese colony at the time, mm. product of wartime, huh? Mm. And as mysterious it is, his birth date, you know, some record shows he was born in 1920. Some record shows he's he was born in 1922, and wrestling records is always 1924 that birthday. That's like mysterious right there, right? Mm. And he is from the northern part of the Korean Peninsula, which was part of Japanese colony at the time. But today's geogra- geographic map, yes, it's part of North Korea, but there was no such country as North Korea or South Korea at the time. Mm. That's what we have to understand first. Then he did not come to Japan with Korean passport. He was a kid from colony. Mm-hmm. But colony it was Japan. technically Japan at that time. So the travel... Uh... Yeah, occupied by Imperial Japan. Mm. And uh, it was a wartime, yeah? And the Japanese, the entire Korean Peninsula being Japanese colony... They spoke Korean at home, but the school was taught in Japanese language. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, so that was part of Japan, Imperial Japan. And I mean, I don't want to get too off topic, but I would say it's still uh, part of Japanese culture today, for sure. I mean, uh, it's a different uh, well, yes and no. yeah, step. It's, just, uh... it's not like when uh, uh, Riki Dozan was, uh, it, it wasn't like that time, but it's still a part of society. Um, it's something that uh, it's it's just a part of everyday life in Japan. That just the fact, not that it functions. Yeah, in, including discrimination, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah um, Korean descent. It, it's a, it's a, an element of Japanese life. Probably always will be. Yes, yeah. Yes and no. Yeah. Yeah. So and, and it'll take on different yeah, forms, no, but yeah, uh, this is not a not just wrestling story, but the we. We need to understand this background that there's a real history in order to understand Rick Dozen as a big picture. Hmm. And so being able to understand him it gives you really a clearer understanding of the country and how it developed. Or the, the entire Asian area. Sure. As a whole. Far East, yeah. 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 So some, some of the Korean record shows that he was born in 1920, and mm-hmm. some of the record shows he was born in 1922. Yeah, lots and... of mystery. And sumo, uh, sumo record and wrestling bio always uh, list him as born in 1924, okay? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And some of the birthday, July 14th, but in the official record, November 14th. And maybe, you know, like July 14th, it was handwritten in like a 714, right? Sure. And 
in 11:14, and somebody misspelled something in between. We don't know about that, you know, but because he had clearly had two sets of birth certificate. That's mysterious, right there. Don't mm-hmm. you think? Mm-hmm. He was born in Korea, but he also had a birth certificate. He as if he was born in in, in Nagasaki, Japan. Which is very far <laughs> from where he was initially born. Yeah, but he was. That's a, his small sponsor's home address. I see. Yeah, yeah, and it was that the Japanese citizenship wasn't for wrestling. He did that apparently second, third year in in sumo wrestling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's been understood like widely that he. Uh, switched passports from Korea to Japan during his wrestling days. It wasn't like that. It really, there was no Korean passport when he came to Japan at the age of either 15 or 16 or 17, right? Hmm. And also, uh, we, we talked about you know this Buddhist thing, but the, in Korean calendar at the time, when you were born as a baby, it's not zero, it's one year old. Uh, different way of thinking about it. You know so what I'm saying? It'll throw the dates off, sure. Yeah, because some of the religious background or some of the country or the you know different parts of the world, when you were born as a baby, you are one year old already. Mm-hmm. That's how they count. And in some countries, yeah. So either he was born in 1920 or 20, 1922, or as wrestling and sumo record shows, he might have been born in 1924. But that that's not really... Um, justify the fact that the, he had baby in Korea. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. When you were 15, you probably wouldn't, you know, wouldn't have had a baby in, in, in back home. It's so, not, not usual, but it happens. Yeah, yeah. Anyhow, uh, the actual record, he was a sumo wrestler between 1940 to 1950. Yeah, 10 years. Either being 16, or 15 to 25 or 27, uh, 17 to 27 years old. But uh, yes, he was sumo wrestler for 10 year period, 1940 to 1950. Then the real history lesson, 1941, around this time of the year, there was Pearl Harbor, right? Mm-hmm. In 1945, summer of 1945, there was Narasaki and Hiroshima's. Mm-hmm. So he was, he was not uh, the, the soldier, he was sumo wrestlers, you know, all through this, you know, Second World War time, he was in Japan being a sumo wrestler, but there was a war and there was a bombing in Tokyo that uh, we, you know, our parents all experienced. And, uh, but he was a sumo wrestler for a 10-year period, 19, between May of 1940 to August of 1950. Okay? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Then, he was um, relatively successful, too. As yeah, sumo. yeah. Sekiwake, sumo wrestler. Yeah, this right to our episode about uh, sumo from earlier this year for all the details on on that. But second, <laughs> yeah, is like grand, a uh... grand champion is Yokozuna. Grand <laughs> champion is Yokozuna, and the champions are Ozeki. Then underneath, uh, the, you have Sekiwake. He <laughs> was Sekiwake sumo wrestler, um, so he was like a third from top ranking. <laughs> but uh, that, that's are... very high up. Oh, real high up, and that the, when he retired, I have a newspaper clip. Here, like a real old, old photocopy, of course, that uh, when he retired and he cut his samurai hair thing off, he, it was in newspaper. Mm, mm. Rikido-san quit. 
you know, not retiring, but he quit and he cut his, you know, hair off in the middle of the night all by himself. So he's not officially retired, but he protested something. You know, he was a protest to the small association. And uh, yeah, he was very high ranking sumo wrestler, Sekiwake. Yeah, mm-hmm. he was almost was going to make it to Ozeki and then after Yokozuna. And uh, yeah, in the night of August, some, some records show September, but the night, let's say either, yeah, there's a two, two sets of story, August 25th, the night of August 25th or the September 10th that uh, in 1950, summer night at home, Ricky Dozan cut his hair off. You know, the small wrestlers, samurai hairdo? Yes. Yeah. He chopped the head off to pro- as a protest to small association and he quit in that summer, but the small association did not acknowledge his retirement until following January. Hmm. Another controversy, huh? So all in all, he basically either quit or retired from sumo wrestling in 1950. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In 1951, so there's a one-year gap that where he was working as a construction worker and he was doing other things, you know, in Japan, of course. Um, so there was a one-year period that he, after he retired sumo wrestling and, and become professional wrestler. He, somewhere, uh, that the, he had met American, uh, that the, the, the businessman and uh, he that the construction company he was working was building a lot of things for American troops. Mm-hmm. Okay, he had connection with American mm-hmm. and American lawyers, and there was a Bobby Brands uh, wrestling in a tour for the tribute to American um, troops in Japan. Mm-hmm. USO uh, like a tribute to the troops sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the Korean War broke off in June of 1950, okay? And it was tribute to U.S. Troop GHQ, you know, general headquarters in Japan, and also troops to um, the United Nations troops in Korea during the war. Mm -hmm. Bobby Brands, the the Harold Sakata, the Obira Aselin, six, seven wrestlers from America came to Japan and ran the show for the tribute to the troops. September of 1951, okay? Then the former sumo wrestler, they were recruiting a local um, pro wrestler B in, in Japan and retired famous sumo wrestler, Ricky Dozen was, uh, you know, had a connection already there. That uh, the show started, the Bobby Brands, tri- you know, tribute to, uh, I mean, uh, tri- uh, uh, tribute to troops show starts September of 1951. The, that's when he, you know, Ricky Dozen started working out in Tokyo with Bobby Brands and, work, you know, to start practicing and becoming pro re- American-style professional wrestler. Just two, after two weeks of training, Ricky Dozen debuts on October 15th of 1951 against his teacher, Bobby Brands. The exhibition match, 10 minutes, draw. Mm. Yeah. Then Joe Lewis, you know, the king boxing. You Famous, know, the, yeah. We have famous boxing team. He joins the tour and he had, you know, the Joe Lewis as exhibition boxing match. And it was uh, all in all this, you know, 14 shows in Tokyo Memorial Hall. Memorial Hall is actually the old sumo palace that the GHQ took over the building and named it Memorial Hall. It's actually a small palace. Not this real Goku sumo palace, but the one uh, two after, uh, before that. Yeah. But, but the day used sumo palace 
for wrestling show in, in, in September, October, November of, of 1951. And Ricky Dozen and Kokichi Endo, the former um, judo guy, they debuted as an American-style professional wrestler. Mm-hmm. Ricky Dozen technically wasn't the first Japanese pro wrestler. You know, you go back to 1890s, you know, like a Sorakichi Matsuda or, you know, the, the 1920s, you know, Mari Matsuda, the, the you know, there's a quite a few, not quite a few, but the, several Japanese wrestlers who traveled to America and became professional wrestler. But the, the, the most famous one, but the, almost like a, not a fictitious, but the official or more like a storytelling uh, that the, the history of Japanese wrestling, Riki Dosan was the original Japanese professional wrestler. Does that make sense? He was the one to really start to make a splash with with fans in Japan. And it had to be the post-war. That's right, yeah. yeah. We're talking early 50s. It's only a couple of years after the war finished. Yeah, 1951. Six years after uh, war. It's still U.S. occupation. Mm-hmm. And San Francisco peace signing, you know, was in, in the summer of 1951. Just two weeks after San Francisco peace signing, Wrestling was already in Japan. Hmm. There's like a planting the seed of professional wrestling in Japan. They were looking for local Japanese, you know, somebody or former sumo wrestler or former judoka and somebody to become American style professional wrestler and and, and the business will be here in Japan. Hmm. Yeah, so Ricky Dozen in, in October of 1951 had Two weeks of training and debuted right away against Bobby Brands himself. Mm. But it was just the big, very beginning, very beginning. Uh, following year, February of 1952, that uh, Ricky Dozen becoming full-time professional wrestler, and he went to Hawaii to train. You know, he did not want to look like a former sumo wrestler who was big belly. You know, there's there's a Japanese American former professional wrestler, Okishikina was waiting for Ricky Doza in Hawaii mm-hmm. to train him to become real American-style professional wrestler. That was 1952. In Hawaii, he debuted right away against a wrestler called Chief Little Wolf. There was already a territory in Hawaii at the time. Mm-hmm. NWA? NWA like uh, Honolulu or... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and... Uh... Uh, the, the promoter's name was El Karasik. Yeah, mm-hmm. Be, way before your, you know, Ed Francis or the Leah Maivia, you know, took over. There was a pretty big, you know, territory uh, in Hawaii that the, you know people like Luthes travel and comes in and defends his title. You know, and El Karasik was to like uh, uh, had a, had a plan. You know, from the California. San Francisco territory to Hawaii, Hawaii to Japan, and they were going to make this Pacific wrestling territory, which was a plan. Mm-hmm. And Rick Dozan was sent to Hawaii in 1952 and spent first four, four or five months in Hawaii training with Okishikina. Then June of 1952, he went to America, the mainland, San Francisco, and spent one year there working. How to be a wrestler, how to be a promoter, how to be a TV producer, and the whole run wrestling business 
not just learning how to, I mean, like uh, learning the ropes, of course, as a 10 year experience, the small wrestler, great. But uh, he was still rookie as a professional, American style professional wrestler, right? Hmm. Yeah. And so he spent the entire year 1952 all the way to March of 1953, uh, 13 months in America, and learned how to work, I mean, in the ring as a wrestler, and how to do the TV show or how to promote in, in house shows and and how to run the wrestling company basically hmm. or how to how, how to book the, the the matches i guess yeah nfl sunday ticket is now on youtube and youtube tv which means that it just got easier to be an nfl fan even if you live far away like maybe you like the bears but you're hibernating in panthers territory but with nfl sunday ticket your out-of-market team is never more than a short distance away Specifically, the distance from you to your remote control. NFL Sunday Ticket, now on YouTube and YouTube TV. Go to youtube.com slash presale to get $50 off. Terms and embargoes apply. Offer ends 919. No refund. Subscription auto renews. What's up? It's Kaylee Cuoco. When it comes to travel, we all have a happy place. I just went to my happy place. I just went to Maui, and it was truly amazing. Priceline has always been about getting you to your happy place for a happy price with deals you really can't find anywhere else, like up to 60% off select hotels in Costa Rica or five-star hotels for two-star prices in Cabo. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. He was on an OJT trip. He was on the job training for his <laughs> on the way back. Yeah, but he was like, a, he had the vision, you know, mm. to make, he will be the king of this new, new sport entertainment called professional wrestling. Western sumo. Yeah, what they're calling a seiyo sumo. Yeah, mm. Western sumo. Cause it, it must have been really similar for Ricky Dozen, huh? Because there's a shoot, there's a work. And it's a mix of it and also closed society that uh, you only let your peer, you know, in. And, 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 and you don't tell anything to anybody from outside. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Still closed society. Yeah, complete kayfabe era, right? Mm-hmm. But Sumo was the same way. Yeah. So uh, he understood wrestling like he pretty much understood sumo wrestling and it was similar then. And also Ricky Dozan was the one who brought all the sumo culture into Japanese pro wrestling culture, like you know, having all the your your disciple protege to your dojo, you know, the sumo bear situation. All the rookie will be living there and and uh, live, breathe and sleep and practice and live, you know, the, the same 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 way of training as sumo society. Right. And yeah, that's how they train their rookies, and uh, the, the the tournament schedules, yeah, mm-hmm. and, uh, and things were and senior wrestlers to rookie wrestlers hierarchies, you know. It's so similar even today that the whole structure, the foundation, or the fundamental structure of pro wrestling in Japan is really of course, yeah, because Ricky Dozan brought all those culture and their their customs from sumo wrestling into pro wrestling in Japan. And eating chunk of food, right? Mm-hmm. Even some training techniques or stretching techniques. Or... Oh, yeah, that the sumo push up and sumo sit ups and mm-hmm. uh, how to, you know, tackle each other and, yeah. Stretching the legs and of course, a wide, of course. yeah, wide, wide yeah. Uh, base. And... and using body weight instead of, you know, that the 
pumping iron. Sure, yeah. sure. Yeah, very similar. Yeah, and and the lifestyle itself. Yeah. Anyhow, that the 1952, the entire year he spent in in Hawaii and America, and rookie, but he had over 100 matches. You know, that's why he met people like Sharp Brothers. And he comes back in March of 1953, after 13 months, you know, in states. Then in the summer of, of 1953, July 30th to be exact, he formed Nippon Pro Wrestling Kyokai, that uh, Japan Wrestling Association, that company body first, not the promoting company like your shows, but the, he came up with your association, that the organization first to make it like real professional sport, huh? Mm. That's when they had the real, uh, like a real big wig from, you know, Yomiuri newspaper, the, uh, you know, concert promoters and, you know, that the, all these important people gathered and they were part of the, the, the board member of this JWA, Nippon Pro Wrestling Kyokai. Yeah. And, uh, he built the foundation as his big organization first, much like your boxing organization, sort of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or oh, similar association, same method. You know, it was like that, a, a kind of a mix of, of all the combat sports at the time. It was a natural mix of approaches, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then, uh, yes, but the organization first. Then they, they built the Ricky Dozen Gym, Dojo. And uh, they introduced pro wrestling and in front of these all, all the important people that the Ricky Dozan and Kokichi Endo had an exhibition match. This is what pro wrestling is, sirs. You know, uh, a former judoka Endo and former sumo wrestler Ricky Dozan showing these, you know, the important people what re- pro wrestling is. Similar to sumo, very similar to judo, but not geese. And there's a submission, there's a striking but mostly grappling and it's like fights, almost like street fight fight, but there's a rules. And then and, uh, they were introducing pro wrestling as very popular sports in America. We got to do this in Japan. Interesting, huh? Mm. In, in 1953, that was summer of 1953. In November of that year, he went back to Hawaii for a couple more months, you know, to train and also, I guess, to sign uh, American wrestlers come in, and interestingly enough, that uh, one year, oh, the technically two-year rookie then, but only had like a maybe over just over 100 match under his belt. That uh, December of 1953 in Honolulu, Hawaii, the international uh, international auditorium, something like that. That uh, he rookie Rick Dozen challenged Lufes in Hawaii for the world heavyweight title for the first time mm-hmm. already. Yeah. And he got Luthes backdrop, the suplex, you know, balance back suplex thing mm. that the Ricky Dozen apparently got knocked out and unconscious and lost the title match. And it was all reported um, to Japanese newspapers that the professional wrestler, now Ricky Dozen, but Ricky Dozen, he, he carried the small name. You know, okay. In, in Korea, his name was Kim Shin Raku, right? Mm-hmm. And Sumo, his name was Mitsuhiro Momota, a real name. Then wrestling name was Ricky Dozen. Mm. Yeah. 
then we talked about two sets of birth certificate, right? That there's a record in, in Korea, uh, the northern part of the Korean Peninsula, that there's a record of his parents and family and his brothers and born in that part of the world. Then there was another set of birth certificate. He was born in Narasaki and he's as, as the son of Momota and uh, he was Mitsuhiro Momota, the Japanese. That's very mysterious right there. But uh, uh, that's part of the wartime, huh? Like we said. Mm. Yeah. And he was a kid from Colony. And he was discriminated in record. That the books that's written in Korea, like to, to this date, is that all they focus is this, this discrimination thing in Japan. And in Japanese biography of Ricky Dozen, that that was published you know in late 50s into early 60s it was all written like he was born in japan and all these you know episodes and how to you know how he got into sumo wrestling and became star he retires and becoming a really big you know superstar in new sport called pro wrestling pro wrestling right mm. anyhow that uh, at the time in 1952 and 1953 i believe he was already traveling with japanese passport I mean, in 19, I mean, four years, five years after the war, traveling to the States, Hawaii, to the mainland of the States, from Japan, back and forth, back and forth, he must have had Japanese passport, huh? Of course, yeah. I mean, it wasn't easy for um, citizens to travel around then. Uh, even obtaining a passport was difficult uh, right after the war. So, uh, yeah, it's, so hard to, was, uh, it's hard to say, yeah. So he didn't, obviously, he didn't start wrestling business on his own. There was like a group of people uh in in as early as 1951 and 1952 that the professional wrestling as a business would be brought into japan and he was ba basically handpicked by bobby brands will make this guy professional wrestler former sumo wrestler and some of the books says that the bobby brands was surprised that the, you don't have the sumo hairdo anymore what happened hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah, and he was ex expecting Ricky Dozan to have that hair do like samurai. Sure. You know? Yeah, but the, he already cut the hair, and he was retired the previous year. Anyhow, the, the, let's uh, fast forward the tape. Uh, he debuted in you know something you know that the fall of 1951, and went to America in 1952. Spent the entire year in Hawaii and San Francisco, and had uh, over 100 wrestling matches. Then he came back to Japan in 1953, and and the JWA was formed. Okay. Then he went back to Hawaii and had uh, more training and uh, more of assigning American wrestlers to come into Japan. And he already had uh, the title, world title match against Ruthess in Hawaii, uh, December of 1953. Then comes back in February of 1954, February 19th, 20th, 21, 21st, three consecutive days at the Sumo Palace, the wrestling was born. That's when Ricky Dozen and Masahiko Kimura, the, the, the king of judo, who turned professional wrestler in in different way. That uh, there was such thing as professional judo that you know they ran and failed. That the, before wrestling, there was a group of judoka who tried to make judo professional sport, and uh, they ran professional show, uh, but uh, it didn't really work and work out, and they failed in, in a way. And, and Kim, Masahiko Kimura was brought to Hawaii as a judo instructor. And before he knew it, he was in wrestling ring for some reason. Yeah, just before that, his, uh, his Kimura's ties 
weren't to wrestling, but they were kind of tied to the early days of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, and he was one of the main um, Gracie. Yeah, yeah, the connection with on. Gracie's grandpa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, he's a huge, huge name in in martial arts in 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 the judo world. Hmm. Kimura Lock or double wrist lock. Oh, that's today's yeah, wrestling. the double wrist lock like uh, Brock Lesnar does. Sure. That's called Kimura. That's Kimura his lock. Yeah, Kimura Lock. Yeah. So uh, he just so happened to become um, professional wrestler in Hawaii, thinking that he was going to be a judo instructor in Hawaii and being brought in, but. Uh, uh, Hawaiian promoter wanted to use him in ring. Uh, professional wrestler, but uh, professional judoka, right? And uh, obviously, Masahiko Kimura wasn't a wrestling fan or never seen it before, right? Mm. But uh, he, his wife was really sick, and there was, was like a very little supply for antibiotic in Japan at the time that he, he bought all kinds of medicine in Hawaii and brought back, and he helped his wife and family, yeah. The, again, Masahiko Kimura also is product of wartime, don't you think? Mm. Yeah. yeah. And how and judo would uh, would evolve from there. Would help, yeah. And also, previously, Masahiko Kimura was a type of judoka that never lasted once in 13-year period. Mm. <laughs> and he was, he was vocal about it, too. And I remember, I don't know if it's a, a year or two later, but there were the, the matches between Miki Dozan and... We'll get to that. We'll get okay, to that. Yeah, That's actually the same year. 1954 was the birth of Japanese pro wrestling as a business. Yeah. Like I said, in, you know, the October of 1951, when Bobby Brands had this, you know, tribute to Troop show, Miki Dozan basically debuted as a wrestler. But he... Some people look at it as Ricky Dozan's debut date, but some people look at 1954 February, Ricky Dozan, Masahiko Kimura against Sharp Brothers War Tag Team Championship was the birth of pro wrestling. Therefore, that let's put that date as Ricky Dozan's official debut in Japan. Mm. I mean, before television, you know, I mean, mm. in front of the television camera. Beginning of pro wrestling in Japan was beginning of basically television culture. Sure, sure. Yeah. They kind of coincided. Yeah. Yeah, because uh, Nippon TV and NHK, they started just previously, like, like in 52 and 53, just six, seven, seven years after the war. And US GHQ, General Headquarters, was still in Japan. Then, yeah, um, Japan becomes independent after San Francisco signing. And wrestling business was already in Japan. Somebody must have planned, huh? Mm. Yeah. Anyhow, that uh, this historical match, 1954, February um, 19th, 20th, and 21st, three consecutive dates at the Sumo Palace, that uh, Rick Dozen, Masahiko Kimura challenging the Mike Sharp, Ben Sharp's world tag team titles. That's from San Francisco, huh? Hmm. You know, it, it was not really announced as NWA world tag team title or anything like that. It was like a world championship. What was interesting is though that uh, if it was if it was officially the beginning of pro wrestling, wouldn't you have single match or you know instead of tag team match? Yeah, I don't I don't have an answer for that. But when I think no, about this match, know. I think about I think about how much more important that a tag team match, uh, how much more value it has in a Japanese pro wrestling setting, and I think. 
tag team matches still have that, uh, I don't know what it is. There's a, a uniqueness or a, a different kind yeah, of oh, magic no. to it. Yeah, that uh, professional wrestling, American style professional wrestling was was introduced to Japanese TV audience uh, with tag team match. That's right. So there's That's some right. showmanship in there. The, 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 the double teaming tactics in there. And the people still had to learn what's legal and what's not, and, and the, how how people get DQ'd or the, the close fist not allowed, karate chop yes, that uh, there's a tag made you know being you know made and you know, but you can still come in and you know that the break up the falls or that's how Japanese TV audience learn the basic rules of professional wrestling. And also interestingly enough though, these are tag team situation right? Mm-hmm. Ricky Dozen never lost, and it was Masahiko Kimura always took the fall. Right, right. Yeah, so it's like a, almost always. All all these answers are already in there. You know how to work wrestling match, how to make audience so excited and enjoy the match, and 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 the Ricky Dozen still not winning, but not himself losing. I mean, mm-hmm. carefully carefully booked match, right? Very well thought out. Yeah, that's how bright and creative Ricky Dozan was as a, as a booker and promoter. And he was the one making a big comeback during the match, huh? Did anybody ever help him with booking? Or did he do everything on his own? Um, on his own. Hmm. The king. I yeah. see. I, I see. mean, there's so maybe referee Okishikina or Harold Toki from Hawaii, but, you know, but it was Ricky Dozan, one-man show. The champion and hero and the booker and promoter and TV producer. Yeah, that says it all. Anyhow, that uh, that led to the uh, December of uh, December twenty second, to be exact, nineteen fifty four, December second, first and the only and the last one that the single match between Ricky Dozan and Masahiko Kimura, mm-hmm. Japan heavyweight title match. Where was that? That's at the Sumo Palace. That's at Sumo Palace. Okay. Yeah, yeah. December twenty second of nineteen fifty four. The same year they introduced wrestling, and uh, it was Ricky Dozan and Masahiko Kimura as a tag team, you know, go up against World Tag Team Champion, the the Sharp Brothers Ben and Mike, and Ricky Dozan did not want to win the title right away. It had to be see carefully laid out because. Luther's match previous December, they co- all the news sports pay, you know section covered it. Ricky Dozan challenging world champion, the Yokozuna of you know pro wrestling that uh, he challenged Luther's and lost. So it was already in in, in the picture that the, the the chase of world heavyweight title would be like a real long story. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. For Ricky Dozan's career. It will be challenging Luthes somewhere down the line, so that the, the world heavyweight champion, the name Luthes, was established around that time. Then, world tag team champion Mike and Ben Sharp brothers actually to introduce us American wrestlers, but they're Canadians. That's, that, right, that's yeah. not that, that's not that important. The Mike and Ben Sharp brothers, two giants, big guys, and they pretty much introduced the tag team wrestling. This is how to do. You know, by showing tag team wrestling, you really learn about what the pro wrestling look like. 
Yeah, and I mean, and back then it still there were still similarities between a lot of combat sports. You know what I mean? Yeah, but the tag team will show you how to do the little tricks. Sure. Yeah, or how to cheat, meaning like you know, like do things behind referees' back. And people mm-hmm. very so innocently, you know, get real mad at them. It's like, referee, referee, check, check, right? <laughs> you know? And uh, it was, Sharp Brothers had this, you know, this perfect craft, you know, how to demonstrate what the pro- professional res- wrestling looked like. Mm-hmm. And the two out of three, four match, right? Ricky Dozen wouldn't lose the fall. It was Masahiko Kimura. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. But it really shows you how, what the pro wrestling is, you know, in hindsight. But the, the, the audience was new, the television was new, and it was covered by, you know, first night covered by NHK and Nippon TV, both, live. And also in 200 locations around the country, like in, 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 fr- in front of Shinbashi Station, JR Station, that there's a little TV set to demonstrate what the TV television is. And they're showing Ricky Dawson's wrestling. And the little, what the 15 inch TV screen, there's like a 20, 30 people gathered and watch the television in front of the train station or in front of the coffee shop or in front of the electric shop that uh, you, you want to buy TV so you can watch Ricky Dawson. Right. You watch outside. Really? Yeah. And, and I think you could find those uh, old pictures. Footage, news footage. Yeah. News footage or photos. Yeah, it's a, it's a real phenomenal, very interesting picture of Showa era. That the uh, introduction of television was also introduction of Ricky Dozen's pro wrestling, and Ricky Dozen's pro wrestling made television, you know, popular too. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Of course, TV helped Ricky Dozen become sensational superstar in television era, but Ricky Dozen's wrestling really helped to sell TV sets to the society. Sure. Oh, God, it's a very historical. It sounds crazy, but it's true. And Masahiko Kimura um, talks to Asahi newspaper in an interview says, but, but the Ricky Dozen dressing is such a showman. In the real content contest, I'll beat him. Right. He was reported. Yeah, I'll beat him in real contest. So wasn't a Sharp Brothers match real? And there's like already this talk of pro wrestling being in it. Is this a legitimate contest sport or is this show? And the, the, the question remains another decade or two. You know what I'm saying? Maybe another three decades. Anyhow, that the professional wrestling was born in Japan in 1954, basically. Local, I mean, with local hero in Ricky Dawson. And the beginning of television was the beginning of wrestling, and the beginning of wrestling was the beginning of television. It really helped each other. And the very same year, December, Ricky Dawson against Masahiko Kimura already happened. Two top pro wrestlers, former sumo wrestlers, former judo king, you know, go at it. And we had we have to fast forward like a 20, 20 years that the, later on that uh, Kimura, Mas, you know, Masahiko Kimura had an interview with the magazine saying that it was going to be draw, but uh, the Ricky Dozan uh, um, changed his mind and did that. Ricky Dozan brutally beat, knocked him, you know, knocked Kimura out, right? Mm. Cold in the match. The footage exists. And well, Ricky Dozen died in 63, and uh, 
the Masahiko Kimura interview won't come out until 1983, 20 years after, and telling the, the world that the, it was going to be a drawn and we promised and it was in contract, but instead, Ricky Dozan beat me in that way. You know? This was then again, after he had said, uh, uh, he, he'd have said what he'd said about Ricky Dozan to the media. About yeah. if this were real, I'll, I would win. So do you think this could have been some kind of... Um, Maybe Rick Dozan asserting himself and, and letting him... To make sure he beat him. Hmm. Or just went off the script kind of thing. It's, it's still mysterious because it, 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 we have to look at the big picture. That uh, Masahiko Kimura was not going to make pro wrestling as his full-time career. It wasn't hmm. going to be. And also, he was more of a judo person than he ever was a wrestling person. And also, television choose and the, and the media choose Rick Dozen over Kimura. Hmm. And also, TV people didn't look at Masahiko Kimura, that uh, before pre war judo hero, as your television new superstar it, 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 like Rick Dozen. Rick Dozen is so charismatic and smart and probably backstabbed a lot of people in, in the process. But all in all, that the, it was Rick Dozan who created professional wrestling industry in Japan. Mm. He, he had to win that match. I mean, dirty or not. You know, he had to win because he was going to carry the wrestling business to the next decade. And television, that uh, over 100 you know, shows a year and everything to come with it, that the, Ricky Dozan had to win that fight as much as, you know, not as much as the, the Masahiko Kimura wanted. See, Kimura, Judo, Judo's Kimura was always looking at the matches and, and uh, fight or the, the everything, like almost like an amateur. You know what I'm saying? Mm. In the same 1983 interview, Masahiko Kimura uh, was saying that the, we were going to have rematches and rematches and rematches and go around the country 10 more times and have, make a lot of money. Mm, sure. And winning, yeah, and winning and losing isn't important. We're going to do the junkin, you know, like a rock, papers and scissors. Sure, yeah. You know, who's going to win tonight in rock, paper, and scissors. But that's how he looked at pro wrestling business. Work or shoot. Ricky Dozan looked at the business a little bit more seriously to be, to you know, to conquer this whole industry. He had to win. He viewed it as a business, and he was introduced to it as a business, whereas Kimura is, is coming from a sports and martial arts background, and um, well, egos are going to clash when those core philosophies are at odds. And Masahiko Kimura did not know how to entertain people either. Right, right. And, because in the judo, yeah, you, you want to beat, you know, beat your opponent as soon as possible in the most effective way. Mm-hmm. Whereas Ricky Dozan wanted to entertain people for 20, 30 minutes. Very, uh, I think even today that philosophy is it splits uh, wrestlers and fans even today. Or oh, MMA people. Yeah, yeah. Or, or just people who, who think wrestling should be one certain way and other people who think wrestling isn't just the athletics, but it's the entire business. The, every element of it is, it matters. And the winning and losing part. That's that's not how, that's not exactly how it works. 
Yeah, but even as a work, they superstar need to win, though. Sure. So you know, that's yeah, that's how Rick Dozen looked at it and became king of this mm. wrestling industry. And Masahiko Kimura formed uh, Kokusai Wrestling done in back in his his hometown in Kumamoto. He ran his own wrestling show, you know. After that, but nobody really cared. Really. As what year was wrestler. this? This was 1956? Um, 54, uh, 54 and 55, 56. Oh, so. Yeah, that he brought in people, that the Raul Romero. You, you know the Romero special move? You sure. know, that uh, mm-hmm. you know, put the guy on upside down and, you know, the, 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 your opponent facing the ceiling? Also known as a surfboard. Yeah, Some but the call it over ball. here. Yeah, the Jason uh, yeah, Liger made it very way. famous. Oh, of course, and Aja Kong. Aja Kong. Yeah. Ultimate well, Dragon. A lot of women's wrestlers do that. Ultimate Dragon does that too, yeah. It's a Romero special called, mm. that's done, the, created by Raul Romero, the mask guy. Kimura brought him in, in, in another Mexican wrestler to run their tour, you know. And it's quite, but basically, it's a, it must be a Lucha Libre match, huh? I, I don't, was, yeah, I mean, I, I guess what would maybe like a, a, a Yave style uh, or sort of mat wrestling match, maybe not as I, I can't well, see. Yeah, to, to contradict it, you know, to him, his theory, Masahiko Kimura also tried to run wrestling shows on his own. Hmm. And he even ran shows in Tokyo, but people didn't pay attention to Kimura's show as much as they, they wanted to watch Ricky Dozen's entertainment. Yeah, and his his international uh, pro wrestling done, uh, Koksai, uh kind of closed his shop, and he and um, his partner Kiyomigawa went to Peru, went to Mexico, and all the Central America country travel around there to to, to be wrestler. And so Masahiko Kimura, as much as the judo background he had, he must have Lucha Libre matches around that time period. Must have, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But he eventually came back. Then went back to uh, Takushoku University and became judo coach rest of his career, rest of his life. Yeah. It was never associated with wrestling people after that. But in the meantime, Ricky Dawson's company and NTV and uh, all these things is like a booming professional wrestling, pro wrestling, right? After the uh, Sharp Brothers' famous historical match in 1954, then Kimura match in 1954, uh, the, the following year, 1955, he brought in uh, Asian heavyweight champion from Singapore, King Kong, and he beat King Kong, um, uh, King Kong Tea. Yeah, that, that's a, I'll, I'll send you a photo, but he was the Asian, um, uh, he was basically a Canadian-American guy, but who had he was running show in Singapore, that the real heavy set heavyweight guy, King Kong. He beat King Kong to become Asian heavyweight champion. See, by beating Ricky, uh, uh, Masahiko Kimura, um, he became Japan heavyweight champion mm-hmm. as of 19, uh, December of 1954. And he defended this... Um, Japan heavyweight title against Toshio Yamaguchi, another famous judoka turned professional wrestler. He's from Osaka. That he beat the guy, so he basically conquered all all the existing Japanese heavyweight wrestlers. 
at that at that point. Then 55, he beat King Kong, right, to become Asian heavyweight champion. Then he brought uh, 56. He brought uh, Tom Rice, the Scorpion, Red Scorpion, Tom Rice from California to beat Pacific heavyweight title. So Japan heavyweight title, Asian heavyweight title, and Pacific heavyweight title. In 1954, Luthes was finally brought in as world heavyweight title at the Korakuen Stadium. Mm-hmm. I mean, before there was Tokyo Dome at the same place, a little bit, not exact same place, but the, yeah, basic same location. There was a Korakuen Stadium for the home of Giants. Baseball was this stadium. the one in Kuramae? No, no, no. Well, or that was afterward. Yeah. That was... um. What was the one that, what was that the one that Ricky Dozan built? Ricky Dozan, no, 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 that's not it. That's it. there's a Ricky Palace that comes. Oh, in that's after, there. yeah, okay. Yeah, I'll get to, it. I'll get, get to that. It's Ricky Palace in Shibuya, mm-hmm. but the, this time, November of 1957, Luthes, world heavyweight champion, the king of pro wrestling, finally brought in to Japan to defend his world heavyweight title against Ricky Dozan, and it was held at the Korakuen Stadium. That's where the Tokyo Dome is today. Mm. I mean, no, no dome. It's like outdoor baseball Before the stadium. dome, yeah. Before the dome, Korakuen Stadium, home of Tokyo Giants. Yeah, baseball place, televised. And uh, 35,000 people, you know, witnessed Ricky Dawson challenge, finally, finally challenging world heavyweight title. The, the king of pro wrestling, Luthes, is in town. And... Uh, Sure enough, there was a 60-minute Broadway, yeah? Mm. But uh, there's a two-title match, October 1957, October 7th, at the Korakens, the, the stadium, 60-minute draw. So Ricky Dozan not winning. And, and November 13th at Osaka Pool, like a swimming pool, but they can hold like, a, you know, 15,000. Um, another draw. And they went around country like, you know, uh, the same tour that uh, Luthes against Ricky Dozen happened six more times, like in Kobe or Fukuoka and Nagoya and Sendai, and all either draw or uh, that uh, Luthes winning it, you know. And they went to Okinawa before Okinawa's return to Japan. At the time, it was part of the US, US Okinawa. Mm. But, uh, they went around all over the country and did Ricky Dozen against Luthes all over the country. Much like Ricky Dozen Kimura original plan, huh? Hmm, yeah. But, I mean, this felt like a, a very, very big deal. I feel like, I think I've seen... Oh, real big fo- deal. There was a footage of, they had the, they filmed together, I don't know if this was 55 or 57, but there was so much, uh, like, TV about the match yeah, before yeah, it happened. He was promoted, you know, upon upon Luthes' first arrival, he was like, he was the Yokozuna, the grand champion of professional wrestling, Luthes, that the biggest wrestler of the 20th century. You know, world, interesting enough, they did not announce National Wrestling Alliance or NWA or anything like that. It was NWA world title, basically, you know, technically. Mm-hmm. But in, in Japan, it was, was the world heavyweight champion, Luthes, the only champion. Anyhow, that the Luthes finally came to Japan in 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 October of 1957 had a series of single match, historical single match against Ricky Dozen. See, Ricky Dozen's legacy is so big that uh, 
how long will did it last? Actually, from 1953 to the year he died, 1963. Actually, Ricky Dozen's boom period, like his um, his legacy, was just 10 year period. I mean, seemed a lot longer, right? Or the bigger. Well, yeah, his his legacy has lasted longer than his probably his life, but the time that he the impact that he made in the fifties and into the sixties, yeah. I mean, we still feel it today. He, he was, I can't think of another, not just person, but a character or being that at that time took a country that was feeling pretty down and really began lifting the country up again with his matches. And that was one of, when we factor that into the rise of television Live yeah, much like, like you know that the, the internet you know took over the whole culture thing. Television was it. Sure. In early fifties, black and white TV still, and not every house had TV. It was like you know when Japan's making a comeback and becoming independent again, and then building a company again. And one of the things you want to buy first is television sets, huh? Hmm. You know, it's around the same period. Gorgeous George, Mr. Television, was big in America. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it was uh, it was uh, happening so quickly, and the face that a lot of people associated with the television was Dozan. Rick Dozan, yeah, yeah, and ten ten year period, and uh, there was you know Rick Dozan Masahiko Kimura against Sharp Brothers. Then there was Rick Dozan against Kimura. It's so brutal that a lot, lot of the newspaper um, stopped covering wrestling after that, and uh, and also the question of like. See, my Nietzsche newspaper always uh, ha- had a wrestling result in sports section, but the Asahi Shimbun, another big huge uh, newspaper, stopped covering professional wrestling as a sport in sports section. Mm. That they did their own research in America. It's considered and categorized as sports entertainment, and never was really categorized as a legitimate sports like baseball and football. You know what I'm saying? Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. back then it was still territory to territory. Maybe some cities might write something, but the big cities by that point weren't uh, treating it that way. And Ricky Dozen himself uh, in, in the newspaper and magazine, people were saying like, there's a real one and fake one, even among, within wrestling, in, you know. Hmm. There's a good wrestlers in San Francisco, but in South, it's all show business. It's something like that, you know. Hmm. Or there's an entertainment wrestling, but the, when when you go into the singles t- in the world title match, it's all real, kind of thing. I mean, it's just different logic to it, you know? Sure. I mean, they're always applied, you know? It's always work, always a work, but uh, in Ricky Dozen's, you know, era, that there's a different kind of discussion, you know, that uh, it's all show business. No, no, the, when, when Ricky Dozen does it, it's real, or something like that, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Much like later on, you know, like Inoki Believer, you know, it's like everything else is fake, but the Inoki's real kind of thing. Mm. How's that? Yeah. I think I think that even still is a a part of what we watch today. Not and it's not so easy to to just talk about uh, casually. It's something that is, there's a lot of unspoken uh, parts or intuitive parts of what we're talking about right now. That what I mean. What when we say real over the years, I think the idea of real has even evolved too. Yeah, I think yeah. that. Um, but it's and always been happened, something. Yeah, people and fight what against. happened during 
Masahiko Kimura, Ricky Dozen confrontation, Ricky Dozen went ahead and did it. You know mm -hmm. what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And as a result, he became the king. Yeah. So, so there was, is like a, a yeah, real... It was necessary for Ricky Dozan to really win that match. Mm -hmm. And set the record. And for Masahiko Kimura, the you know, judo superstar, wrestling was something that he was, you know, uh, did as a job, you know, did as, as the way to make a living, right? Mm. And it was an export. It wasn't a Japanese martial art. It was uh, something else. Right. That came, when Kimura must, you know, was wearing a judo gi, he's a judo guy. Mm. When he put on the trunks, he's a sumo, I mean, he's a professional wrestler, barefooted sumo wrestler. I mean, a professional wrestler. Yeah. But Ricky Dozen really conquered the whole, not just the industry, but the whole country by beating Kimura. And Kimura went down from that period, and Ricky Dozen go, went on as a, as a superstar of the decade. Mm -hmm. But that, that's the history. You know? And you have, so, uh, Kim, uh, the Shaw Brothers match, Kimura single match, then the King Kong match, and the uh, Tom Rice match. Then finally, 1957, Luthes was brought in as world heavyweight champion, and Yuki Dozen still didn't beat him. So it's like a, there's a somewhere out there that's still above Ricky Dozen. You know what I'm mm -hmm. saying? It creates a sense of, you know, you can use your imagination. It creates a sense of maybe, yeah, Ricky Dozen is not the, the yeah, absolute best. Yeah, but it's still something, something out there that's better and bigger. And, uh, yeah, then, then uh, there's a whole series of Ricky Dozen story goes, uh, you know, like season one, season two, season three, season sure. four, right? Mm. Yeah. Then 1958, following year, August 27th, Ricky Dozen finally beats Luthes in LA Olympic Auditorium. Finally. Finally beats um, Luthes. Uh, and it was controversy enough. As of August 1958, Luthes wasn't even holding NW World title at the time. Mm. So is this where Rick Dozan ends up? Basically created international heavyweight title. And was that the WWWA title? That was no, the... no, that's not. That, 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 that's later. WWA, that's, WWA Worldwide Wrestling Associate don't come in the picture until like 53, 52. I mean, the 62, 63. So a couple more years. Okay, so he beats four more years. Luthez in San Francisco. No, Olympic Auditorium, LA. Uh, excuse me, yeah. Uh, uh, Olympic Auditorium in LA. August, 20, August 27, 1958. And at the time, NWA World Heavyweight title was held by Dick Hutton. Mm -hmm. That uh, Ricky Dozen, I mean, the Luthes, you know, put him over. But uh, this is like the, the very mysterious, mysterious part of history that the program says, Luthes International Heavyweight Champion mm -hmm. program. And it's more like a you know Luthes nickname at the time when he when he wasn't holding NW World title, anywhere he went, he was billed as international champion. Huh. Like with or without nickname. a belt? Or just a nickname. Well he always had the Luthes belt. That's his. Oh, the very small one, the thin one? Yeah, it's got like a metal. Yeah, it kind of looks like an like an actual belt, like you can wear it. 
and hold up your pants. Yeah, like yeah. So that's that, that's like that's the Luthes belt. Luthes belonging, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyhow, that uh, in Japan it was reported Rikidozan beat Luthes for the World Heavyweight Title. And some of the uh, okay UPI, you know, the news, you know, the actual news, you know, the the wire news mm-hmm. service, like AP and UPI, UPI. Um, the the news you know feeling said that the, it was non-title match, it wasn't even a main event. Ricky Dozen against Luthes took place August 27 at the Olympic Auditorium, and Ricky Dozen beat um, uh, Luthes like DQ finish, you know, the third fall. Anyhow, that the, it was not World Heavyweight Title. It clearly stated that by UPI Newswire, and Upon his return to you know Haneda Airport, Ricky Dozen denies that uh, that uh, I beat Luthes for the world title. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And then quite controversy that. But the newspaper went ahead and said Ricky Dozen beat Luthes for world title. You know. Then shortly after that, it was like almost quietly changed. He beat. Luthes for international heavyweight title. Mm. Then world heavyweight title and international heavyweight title. Yeah, actually, almost didn't make any difference. It both sound like a world title, doesn't it? Right. Yeah. You'd really have to see them to to differentiate them in your mind. Yeah. Completely. So in, then it was reported by Wrestling Magazine that the, that the uh, like additional story. Luthes at, you know, at the time had another belt called International Heavyweight Title. He, he was honored by NWA that the previous year he traveled to the Europe, you know, first NWA world champion to travel to the other side of the world, the Europe, and defended the title successfully and came back to the stateside. Therefore, he was also international champion. I don't know if it was true or not, but a lot of the old wrestling magazine and in the, the the local show program underneath Luce's photo usually say international champion when he wasn't holding nwa title hmm. yeah very touchy huh? almost iffy you know but anyhow that uh, ricky dozen beat Luthes in los angeles that night and won some title okay mm-hmm. and it was reported in japan that he beat Luthes for the world title and shortly after that, it was quietly switched to international heavyweight title, right? The story sounds familiar. I feel like it's repeated itself over history. You had that, <laughs> and later on, you'd have Inoki and Bob Backlin. You'd have Fujinami and Flair. I mean, it's not entirely. They're not very all exactly similar. the very, same. Very, very similar. It's the same uh, principles, you know, and it's it's all based on what, the media in Japan is reporting and, and what's reported. And in how States. people remembered it. Yeah. 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 And also at the building, you know, like a later on, if you watch old, like it's, it's on YouTube, that uh, uh, later on match, match up like uh, Ricky Doza against Dick Bayer Destroyer. Mm-hmm. It's an international heavyweight title defense by Ricky Dozen, right? Mm-hmm. But the ring announcer mm-hmm. in that ring, ring announcer says, World heavyweight title match at the building, so hmm. they they didn't make difference between you know the the world heavyweight title and international heavyweight title. It's almost like one and the same, or almost didn't matter. 
Sure. Rikidoza is a gem. Kind of sounded general. Sounded like the top of the top. International, yeah, world. Well, yeah. Champions, something mm. like that, you know? Yeah, it's, like a, it's not. A, in, the, in, the, in the play-by-play announcer said international heavyweight title. So to make people even more confused. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but uh, all in all, you, you have the belt and you start defending the belt. And Rikidoza held the international title until the day of his death. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Next, uh, 58, 59, 60, 61. Uh, for, for, for the next better part of four years, five years, Rikidoza was international heavyweight champion in Japan and never lost the title. Mm-hmm. That's what history is. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? A couple, but, just well, a well, word or two changes the whole perception, doesn't it? Yeah, and then interestingly enough, you know, a little bit later on, like in the 62, um, Luthes comes over, you know, have another tour in Japan. He challenges Rikidoza for the international title. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Mm. But anyhow, that Rikidoza held the title. He brought, you know, back from America. And that more interesting piece of history is that, all right, that the newspaper asked Ricky Dozen, upon his return from LA, that, okay, where's the belt, right? And the Ricky Dozen said, I don't have that physical belt because that's, uh, that's uh, I had to pay uh, 10 grand. And I didn't have the cash, so I didn't bring the belt back, but I won the belt. <laughs> that's true too, right? Because mm. the physical belt actually belongs to Luthes, you know? Then later on, he designed the you know local international not a local but the international heavyweight championship belt design look exactly like the Luthes belt mm, very similar yeah yeah so uh the also that the origin of the origin of international heavyweight title is somewhat mysterious that the fact is Ricky Dozen defended his international heavyweight title the, the next four years uh, successfully in the big show situation he was always champion mm. yeah and he'd and go on that, to face a lot of different big stars after Luthez, too. Yeah, Don, Don Leo Jonathan to Young Bobo Brazil to Jesse Ortega to uh, you name uh, Haystack Calhoun. And of course, Haystack Calhoun to uh, younger Dick Fire mm-hmm. as a destroyer, as a best opponent, his opponent. And uh, yeah. So when did he start wrestling with the Freddie Blassie? Was that in the 60s? That was like 62. early 61, 62? 61, 60, 61, 61 then, yeah. Yeah, 61 for sure. There was a um, was an interesting twist of history. Uh, 1961, April, September to, no, April, July to September, like a three, four months storyline that the first match, Fre- Ricky Dozen against Freddie Blassie in the L.A. And mm-hmm. second title match was in Tokyo. And third title match, Ricky Dozen and Freddie Bassett was back in L.A. So it was like a really international twist, right? Mm. During that time period, JWA, Nippon Pro Wrestling, sort of ignored international heavyweight title and treated L.A.'s WWA world title as the world heavyweight title. Mm-hmm. That the Ricky Dozen challenging world title uh beating Freddie Blassie in LA and then becoming WWE world champion and no mention of international heavyweight title that he, Ricky Dozen already had. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. So Ricky Dozen in 1961 
Ricky Dawson beat Freddie Blassie and won the title in LA in all film. You know, then he came back to Japan and Freddie Blassie comes over and challenged Ricky Dawson for return match in Japan. Ricky Dawson win again. Then following month back in LA, Ricky Dawson uh, lose the title by blood stoppage. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Did not really get pinned, but the, he was so bloody that the referee stopped the match. Therefore, the commissioner in LA honored the title, awarded the title back to Freddie Blassie. Mm. Another controversy ending of the match. Then the Japanese fan, Ricky Dozen didn't really lose the match. That's LA decision. Sure. It's up in the <laughs> air still. A hollow victory. <laughs> Something like that. Uh, but uh, so nine. From 1952 to 1953, 1954, big Sharp Brothers match, uh, Masahiko Kimura match, 55, 56, Asian heavyweight title to Pacific heavyweight title to challenging Luthes at the Korakuen Stadium, and finally 58, summer of August 27th to be exact, 1958, Dozan finally beats Luthes for the world title or international title. What was mysterious? If Ricky Dozan was to beat Luthes to win the world title or international title that day, wouldn't you think they would film it? You think so? Yeah, there is no there is no video footage of that match. Yeah, but that was also still a time when um, it wasn't just TV was so popular, but also it, it wasn't... Um... You know, in the States today, we have weekly wrestling. We have wrestling on once a week, the same time. It's it's established as a, it's almost like a ritual. But back in the late 50s, it was still uh, searching for, I mean, it wasn't national. Um, it was just, if a TV station wasn't already involved with the company, like over in Japan, LA was. harder. LA was. LA was. Oh, okay. So LA was. I'm not sure. I don't know. Um well, something, uh... that's my, my take on this. See, Ricky Dozan was going to win the mysterious world title or international heavyweight title, right, in LA set. But he did not want to bring the, the, the video or film footage about that. Hmm. Only still photo. Still photo and, uh, and uh, writing. A number of news, you know, sports writers that was in the building that day. Not hundreds. Just about five, six news reporters, mm-hmm. and they did not understand that the not a wrestling journalist, but the regular newspaper sports journalist, right? Mm-hmm. And the ending was that that the Rick Dozan was on the apron, and and uh, that the Luthes giving a drop kick from the, the inside the ring onto the apron, and Rick Dozan takes fall outside the ring, and that the comes back and do the count-out finish and the DQ first or the count-out first. Or it's like a really confusing ending that the sports journalists didn't understand. Is that interesting? It's all carefully laid out by Luthes and Ricky Dozen in hindsight. <laughs> the history is really mysterious in, in a way. Hello. Can you hear me? Yeah, can you hear yeah, me? Yeah, especially back then, too. I mean, um, geez, it's kind of, I feel like Luthez taught Ricky Dozan a lot in those late 50s years, for sure. And also, Luthez was 
treated as your one and the only undisputed world heavyweight champion. Right. It's the hardest. It is the hardest thing in wrestling to beat Luthes. And Ricky Dozen finally beat Luthes in Los Angeles, not in Japan. And supposedly bringing back the world heavyweight title from America and the world heavyweight title or international heavyweight title was to stay in Japan. That was Ricky Dozen's plan. Mm. Very interesting, huh? Well, we can go over second half of Ricky Dozen's, you know, career from you know 58 59 into 1963 you know, because um 90 that the 59 he created world league tournament every spring that the mm. spring tournament tradition starts much like today's iwg i mean uh well the initial iwgp tournament or jan baba's champion carnival tournament or you know what i'm saying mm-hmm. still going today so, there i think new japan's real world tag league uh still happening oh yeah no it just ended yeah it just ended and, that's right uh, all japan has theirs uh, this is still a common tradition in japanese mm-hmm. pro wrestling so spring tournament world league uh wrestling tournament was uh created in 59 and ricky dozen won five consecutive years until the year he died we'll, we'll cover that hmm. and 58 arm that uh Professional wrestling television becomes weekly program in Japan. Mm. See, until then, it was almost like a boxing match. When the wrestler comes in, they'll air, you know, Sharp Brothers against Ricky Dozen Kimura, or Ricky Dozen against King Kong, or Ricky Dozen against Kimura, or, or whatnot. That it was like a television special. You know what I'm saying? Sure. Not exactly, uh, not exactly weekly television program you watch every week, like every Friday night. It doesn't happen until like 62 uh, when Ricky Dozen opened the, uh, the Ricky Palace, his own building. Mm. Yeah. It was a special uh, event instead of a weekly tradition. Right, right. Much like your boxing world title match. Mm-hmm. Exactly. In the meantime, they had the TV special like Ricky Dozen being commentary and the Yoshino Sato and somebody wrestles on, on, you know, on smaller building for the mm-hmm. TV show. You know, but the, when Ricky Dozen does it, it's it was so special. You know, you're king wrestling tonight, kind of thing. Mm. In the meantime, yeah, that uh, 1960, both Jan Baba and Antonio Inoki, you know, like a 22 year old Jan Baba and 17 year old Antonio Inoki debuts 1960. And that's all we we got to spend time talking about that too. Um, yeah, I mean, the rest of the, the business carried on through Antonio Noki and through Giant Baba. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I would like to, yeah, I want to stop uh, at this international heavyweight title, you know, story and mysterious, you know, or, you know origin of the title. But in, all in all, it's still part of All Japan Pro Wrestling's Triple Crown, right? Mm-hmm. So, to this day, international heavyweight title came to Japan and became that uh, household name. Yeah, it was Rick Dozen's title. So next time, let's pick up around 1958 and mm-hmm. into the 60s, and we can cover all that we just talked about with Baba Inoki, uh matches with guys like again. We'll talk about Freddie Blast. Yeah, okay, well, one more thing. One more thing. Mm. It was like uh, the the occurrence and uh, the night. Uh, we'll cover that next time for sure in details. But uh, December 8th of 1963, Ricky Dozan was stabbed. 
uh, in the nightclub called the New Latin Quarter in Akasaka, that uh, in the bathroom fight that uh, this lower Yakuza mob guy stabbed, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Ricky Dozen. And some some of these English writing, you know, English written, you know, stories, like he was stabbed by urinated, you know, like a pissed uh, yeah, knife. Like and, a, yeah, contaminated a yeah, knife. knife and, yeah. 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 The, the other story was that <laughs> Ricky Dozen had two million dollars in cash in US currency and handcuffed himself to the briefcase and he went to bathroom and the mafia followed him and stabbed and killed him and uh, cut his wrist off and stole the money or something, something real crazy. Yeah, like the a, uh, Pulp Fiction or something. Yeah, I think so, yeah. The Ricky Dozan was not stabbed to death that, that night. In fact, after he was stabbed by this short knife, you know, that the, he walked back to the table where he was drinking and he had more drinks. Mm-hmm. Then he walked up to the stage you know, where the live band was playing. There's a gang map store in this building. Please, People, please be careful. Ha, 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 right? Then mm-hmm. he went back to his table where he was drinking, kept drinking that night. Then the, his entourage, you know, his friends, is like, sir, you're, you're bleeding. You're bleeding. No, don't call ambulance. You know, the people know. Don't call the ambulance. Then he sat there and kept drinking until he didn't feel any good. Then he went back home, then called the ambulance and went to the hospital. Mm. The stab happened December 8th, and he was in the hospital for one week. He finally, well, I wouldn't say finally, but he died of complication on December 15th. Mm. He was not stabbed to death at, at, the, at the, you know, bathroom. You know what I'm saying? Right. Right. It's not the uh, same story that we've heard. Oh, no. He went back to the table where he was drinking and had more drinks, you know? And uh, his friends and entourage, some, you know, these people said, it was a, Sir, you're bleeding. You're bleeding. Said, ah, nah, it's nothing. Tough and guy. He kept drinking. Yeah. yeah. And he said, We should call ambulance. Don't call ambulance. And people know. Ricky Dozan, that's not Ricky Dozan. It's like he kept wanting to keep the image of it, you know? And it's well, you know, well documented. Books and books and books being written. And the guy who, you know, the the, the yakuza mafia guy who actually stabbed uh, Ricky Dozen, he mm-hmm. his his name's out there. I don't want to mention his name, but there was uh, the first court and the higher court and the Supreme Court, and he was charged with manslaughter instead of murder. And he's this guy served seven years and got out. Ah. Yeah, it's a complex that, story. Yeah, that's a real complex story. But the war start from around international heavyweight title winning from Luthers in LA in 1958. And then we'll cover in 58, 59, 60, 61, 63 until his death next next episode. And but the, today, hmm. yeah, today is Ricky Dozen's Memorial Day, December 15th. He died exactly today, 59 years ago. So we'll pick up next time at 1958 and we'll talk more about everything. But if we have questions for you and we want to ask you about anything Ricky Dozon related, where can we find you online? Uh, uh, on Twitter, at Fumihiko Dayo, F-U-M-I-H-I-K-O-D-A-Y-O, Fumihiko Dayo on Twitter, or just Fumisaito on Facebook. Please message me first. Hmm. And on Twitter, I'm at Justin M. Nipper, K-N-I-P-P-E-R. For this week, that's it. We're going to pick up next time. We're going to talk more about Rikidozan. 
and all kinds of interesting Japanese pro wrestling topics. So until next week, Fumi, please take it away. So long from Tokyo. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.